Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Jeff, and along with Brian, we are the hosts of this program. Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast. You have Brian and Jeff along with you as usual. And this morning we're going to take a look at some questions that have been submitted to our website on faith. And Jeff, I was thinking when it comes to this category of faith, in some respects it can be kind of a broad category. We talk about the faith as in the truth, or people submit questions about you know, their own faith or falling away, you know, losing faith. So in that sense, it can be kind of a broad category, right? But uh, there are many elements of faith that we can certainly consider. True. Well, and arguably, I could say it's it's probably one of the most important. It could be the most important, you know, topics in the Bible. But it also appears to be one that's fraught with a lot of misunderstandings and or false doctrine out there. So all in all, it's a, uh, a good topic for us to spend our time on today. Yeah, it definitely is. And so as we go along, we will actually take a look at questions that have been sent to our website at BibleQuestions.org. And just to refresh our listeners' minds, or if you are new to the podcast, our website, BibleQuestions.org, has an archive of over a thousand questions and answers that have been submitted over the years and that we've responded to. So we encourage you to go there. We have a section that lists some of the more popular questions that we get. But there's also an alphabetical index you'll notice right there on the front page. So if you, for instance, wanted to find out what questions have been submitted in the past on baptism, you just click on the letter B, go down to that section on baptism. In addition to questions that have been submitted and answered, we have a host of articles and sermons and previous podcasts, right, Jeff? Just kind of a lot of material. And then also there's an Ask a Question button. So if you look through that material and there is another question you have that we haven't already answered, Feel free to submit that. Jeff administers that program. He'll take your question and give it out to one of the men who provide a response, and we're always good about getting you a response back within a few days. So, Jeff, this comes from somebody anonymous, and they said here, some people say that having doubts is a sin. I must say that I disagree with this. I, for example, study religions, and I face sometimes small moments of doubt while studying, but these go away quickly. I actually think, they say here, that doubt strengthens our faith, since if one truly never questions their beliefs, then once they are questioned, won't they even be faced with greater doubt? Or a child who is told by her parents that she needs to be a Christian but never even questions or challenges her beliefs? Is it true that all doubt is a sin? What do you think about that? Yeah, that's kind of an interesting question. And in some ways, there may be a little matter of degree. I mean, on the one hand, and we'll get into this more as we go through uh, trying to answer the question. On the one hand, you know, I can certainly see some room for, you know, a little bit of a questioning or uncertainty or trying to probe or understand or, you know, further study through a particular topic, which is, I think, part of the natural growing process. But at the same time, the scriptures do issue some warnings about having doubt. And I think where we want to start is with a reading, Brian, if you would please, from uh, Matthew chapter 14, verses 25 through 31. And pay attention as Brian gets kind of down near the end of that reading, and I'll, I'll make some comments when he's done. 
So Matthew 14, beginning in verse 25, says, Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Right. And so the initial point I would make from this passage is that Jesus links having doubts with having little faith. It's interesting in the case of Peter, first of all, let's give him credit for having you know, boldness enough to get out of the boat. But when in some ways he kind of took his eyes off of Jesus, to some degree, figuratively speaking, saw that the wind was boisterous, he became afraid, began to sink. And not that he doubted Jesus, but started to, because even he goes on to say, Lord, save me, because he recognized, you know, Jesus had the power and the ability to do that. But, you know, letting other things enter his mind, concern over the waves, especially in his case, you know, being a professional fisherman. And then, as I mentioned, Jesus goes on to say, ah, okay, you started to doubt, and equates that with having little faith. Now, with that kind of a bridge, we can go on to some other verses. For instance, uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 30, talks about being anxious or worried or concerned over physical things. Verse 30, now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So once again, when we start taking our eyes off of God, having a strong, you know, faith, conviction, trust, confidence, etc., and we start getting worried about, you know, physical things, you know, that's equated with having little faith. Now, you can also find other comparisons between, you know, having little faith, being weak in faith, wavering through unbelief, being versus in contrast to being strengthened in the faith, Romans chapter 4, verses 19 through 20. In that particular case with God's promise to Abram to give him and Sarah a son in their old age. Now, at the same time, might also mention that uh, even prayer itself is commanded to be offered up without doubting. First Timothy 2, verse 8, I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Uh, Brian, why don't you go ahead and read for our listeners James chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Okay, here it says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. All right, so here we get, have you know connection between faith and doubting. And that we you know, are to express our faith you know, without you know, doubts. Uh, we're exhorted to be strong in the faith. First uh, Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. Um, and yet, as I mentioned at the beginning, at the same time, you know, in some ways, faith and learning and knowledge is somewhat of a growing process. First Peter chapter 2, verse 2. 
says, as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Likewise, Second Peter chapter 3, verses 17 through 18. Yeah, Brian, if you want to go ahead and read that one for us, please. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Right. Now, as I said at the beginning, you know, it's good that, you know, we learn, we study, that may expose some initial doubts, you know, temporary, momentarily, whatever, but we, you know, work to overcome them. In fact, in some ways, it's good that we're willing that we might be wrong, that we do need to study, uh, that we do need to be open-minded enough to change if necessary. In fact, Luke in the Acts of the Apostles records what I might call the good attitude of the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, where it's written, Now these people were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And so, again, it may be a matter of degree. You know, some initial doubts that you worked through to strengthen your faith. You know, that's certainly a good thing. But doubts, having doubts in general, is something we, you know, need to detect and need to, you know, work to get rid of as we, you know, strengthen our faith. Brian, you want to uh, weigh in on anything there before I ask you uh, your question? Yeah, I appreciate the balance that you brought to the answer because you're right. I mean, before we come to the knowledge of the truth, and, you know, and sometimes even after, it's not uncommon to have questions about elements of our faith. Certainly before we become a Christian, we might have doubt. Hey, does God exist? Those kinds of things. But as you pointed out, there's that fine line there between having questions and being weak and wavering. You know, Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4 that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So God's expectation is that we learn and build our faith so that we have less doubts, if you will. In fact, you know, it's interesting, once we learn, believe, are baptized, have complete faith in the truth, then having doubts, as you pointed out, Jeff, can be a symptom of a larger problem. Maybe you're weak. In fact, Paul even said of some men in the last days over in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 7 that we can be somebody who is always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So once again, that fine line there, it's just something we have to be careful about. So anyhow, appreciate your answer there. Okay, okay. All right, so let's go on to the next question in today's series. Uh, so this comes in by uh, someone whose first name I appreciate, uh, Jeffrey, <laughs> same as mine. Uh, he writes, why is having faith in Jesus Christ more rewarding than following the law of Moses? Yeah, interesting question. And, you know, really, if we were just to say a, a quick answer would be, you know, because we live under the law of Christ, the new covenant today, instead of the law of Moses. But, you know, faith in Christ is certainly an important step in the salvation of our souls. Over in Romans chapter 10 and verse 10, we are told, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Jesus said over in John 8, 24, Therefore I say to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And so, you know, when one has faith in Jesus and is willing to keep his commandments, as Jesus said in John eleven thirty five, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. 
And, uh, you know, we are willing to repent of our sin, as we read in 2 Peter 3, 9. We're willing to confess our belief in him before men, Romans 10, 10, and be baptized for the remission of our sins. And, you know, we're taught that in passages like Mark 16, 16, Acts 2, 38. And then after we become a Christian, you know, remain faithful until we die. Well, the reward and the reason why you would say that faith in Christ Jesus is more rewarding is because we can have eternal life according to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10. Now, the law of Moses cannot save us and there is no reward in following that law because that law was fulfilled when Jesus died on the cross. And Jesus, in fact, says that in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, that he didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. So, you know, it was really part of God's plan for Jesus to come. And the Bible teaches us that the law served a specific purpose until Jesus came. And so, Jeff, I'd like to ask you, if you would, to read for us Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 through 29, where it talks about this very subject. And then, Jeff, if you have any comments on that section, feel free to add. Okay. All right, starting again, Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. Or if there had been a law given, which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith, which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor. Some translations, I think, might have schoolmaster. To bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Uh, you asked Brian for some potential comments. And I think this is an area that you know some people kind of get confused on when they say, well, yeah, Christ came, we need to have faith in Jesus, but we also need to obey the Ten Commandments or we need to obey certain you know food restrictions out of the Law of Moses. But as this and other passages indicate, that the law, law of Moses, you know, did have a purpose, you know, to point out sin, to kind of prepare people for the coming of the Christ, of the Messiah. It was like our schoolmaster, our tutor to kind of help, you know, teach us, train us, whatever. But now that we are under the new system, now that we are under Christ, we are no longer under the law, no longer under the tutor. So there's been a, you know, primarily a change in the law. Brian, how about you? Yeah, you're exactly right. In fact, if you look at most false religions in the world today that claim to follow the Bible, they are often confused or just not knowledgeable about the fact that there was a change in the law. So they often grab parts of the old law, like you mentioned, right? Parts of the new, co-mingle them together and those kinds of things. And so, you know, when Jeffrey talks about, you know, why or ass, I should say, why is having faith in Jesus Christ more rewarding? Well, notice in what Jeff here just read, 
It talks about in verse 23, but before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith, which would afterward be revealed. Verse 24, you know, the law was our tutor, like you said, Jeff, schoolmaster in some translations, to bring us to Christ. Why? That we might be justified by faith. And then verse 25, after faith has come, through Christ Jesus, right? We are no longer under that tutor or no longer under that old law. And then verse 26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And so faith through Christ is such an important element. It really helps us to understand here, not only that, but also why there was this change in the law and the purpose that the old law served. And so it's just a very important lesson to learn as it relates to the faith overall. Now, one thing that's important to remember is that we cannot be saved by faith alone. And that's another unfortunate sort of insidious false doctrine that's out in the world today. And that's, you know, hey, just accept Jesus as your personal Savior. Have that belief. Have faith that there is a God and a Jesus, and you'll be saved. Well, the Bible clearly says that it takes more than that. In fact, just one passage makes that really clear, and that's in James chapter 2 and verse 24, uh, where we're told, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. And so here and in other places, you know, the scriptures clearly teach us that we must also be baptized for remission of our sins, as we mentioned earlier, you know, in passages like Mark 16, 16, Acts 2, 38. And so faith is just one of the steps needed to be saved. And Hebrews 11 gives us a good definition of faith, that it's the evidence of things not seen. And then in verse 6, it talks about, you know, without faith, it's impossible to please him and so forth. So many elements to faith, Jeff, but I guess at a basic level here, it's just important to understand that it's faith in Christ Jesus through following all of what the scriptures teach us that ultimately can lead to that reward that Jeffrey asks about. Well, and one other aspect I'll just kind of toss in there, following the law of Moses, and I think the scriptures clearly reveal that no one can follow the law of Moses perfectly, sinlessly, and that's why you have under the law of Moses the you know provision for animal sacrifices, etc. So yeah, if you want to follow the law of Moses, then you're kind of caught in a trap because it's something you can you know, never completely do. If you violate one thing under the law of Moses, you know you're guilty of sin, and being guilty of sin, what are you gonna do? I mean, offer animal sacrifices today? I, you know, people go, oh no, no, we don't have to do that. Okay. Then how do you take care of sin? Oh, well, by having faith in Jesus. Right. There you go. A change in the law, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah, and if there's any confusion for those of you who are listening about, you know, this idea of, you know, the Bible requiring more than just faith and belief and so forth, uh, on our website, we have a section called Steps to Salvation. And if you look in that section, it really does a nice job of clarifying and teaching, you know, showing from Scripture what the true steps of salvation are to be saved. And so, Jeff, the next question uh, for you comes from Utpul, I believe. Hopefully I didn't mispronounce that, Utpul, who asks, how can I be faithful or a faithful believer in Christ? Right. Now, on the surface, the question appears relatively simple, but you can kind of dig in just a little bit. I mean, first of all, in my mind, it starts off by studying by learning. And some of that might be listening to, you know, gospel uh, sermons, might be listening to podcasts like this one. Really, 
what's first important, uh, first of all, of importance is to come to that point of having belief. And of course, that's based on studying and learning and about the word of God, etc. We mentioned the Bereans earlier, uh, Acts 17, uh, who you know examined the scriptures. We mentioned 1 Peter uh, 2.2, talk about you know newborn babes, talk about desiring the sincere milk of the word that they may grow. Likewise, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 17 through 18, you therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall, again, there's warnings about apostasy there, fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, you know, first and foremost, coming to an increasing level of knowledge, and I might throw into that mix, that includes examining the available evidence that, yes, indeed, God does exist, that the Bible is his inspired word, that Jesus is the Son of God, uh, and that your faith is based on reasonable evidence. And all of that tends to be under a topic uh, that's sometimes referred to as Christian evidences. And, of course, this gets into creation versus evolution and some of the scientific evidence, uh, etc., but to be a, a true believer, you know, these are the kinds of things you need to examine uh, and come to a knowledge of and a conviction of. Now, that's kind of the, you know, believer side of the question. How can I be a faithful believer? But there's also the faithful part. And Brian, as you already introduced to our listeners, it's more than just having a superficial faith or an acknowledgement of Jesus as our personal Savior goes far, far beyond that. Because if you look into definition of faith or being faithful, you know, you see words like being loyal, steadfast, following. Of course, that opens the door to faith needing to be an active faith, a working faith, an obedient a large number of scriptures. I'll just sort of, you know, give you the scripture references or give the audience some scripture references that they can write down and, and dig into. Passages like those found in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, through the following chapter 10, verse 13, and other passages that we could offer up, hammer home the need to continue to be faithful, steadfast, obedient. In fact, the exact expression, you know, fall from grace, which some religious groups say you can never do once you believe is found in Galatians chapter 5, verse 4, where it is you know, acknowledged as a potential reality. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 22, talks about that not only can one fall, but it would have been better off for them never to have known you know, the gospel and instead you know, turn back and fall away from the faith. Now, certainly, Brian, you know, the Bible does teach that we can have confidence in, you know, for sure, God's ability to save, and to, you know, in, in many ways, the security of the believer, it is conditional. And, of course, you can find references like you mentioned over in, in James chapter 2. You know, faith without works is dead. 
So through the scriptures, what we have is a general biblical principle that if we forsake God, he will forsake us. And you can read about that in Second Chronicles chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. Certainly God will not force anyone to be saved. He wants us to be saved, but he's not going to force it. John chapter 3, verse 16, a famous passage as well. Now, Jude verse 21 says we need to keep ourselves in the love of God. Of course, that includes walking in the light of God's word, repenting, asking for forgiveness when we sin. You can read more about that in 1 John chapter 1, beginning of verse 5 through the next chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 6. So, Brian, in many ways, the faith that saves or the faith that justifies is an obedient faith, a faith that works by love, uh, to quote Galatians chapter 5 verse 6. And as we've kind of alluded to a couple different times, you know, James chapter 2, a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Faith only is a dead faith. And so bottom line, as we see, you know, saving faith then is an active, obedient faith, you know, as we can see in, in passages like Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, as well as what is sometimes called the Hall of the Faithful, Hebrews chapter 11. Brian? Yeah, I appreciate you mentioning, Jeff, that, you know, it's it's working. It's a working faith. And, you know, when we think about the question, you know, how can I be a faithful believer? As you pointed out, it really takes active work. And I was thinking as you were going through uh, your comments, uh, you know, 2 Timothy 2.15, right? And the King James rendering says, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so, yes, the Christian life is an active life. And while some false teaching may say, all you have to do is believe, and like you said, Jeff, it's passive in their minds, the Bible says just the opposite. And really, if you think about it logically, it doesn't really make sense to say, I am a servant of the Lord. And Ephesians 2.10 says that God created me to do good works, but yet I'm just going to be passive. Anyhow, it, it's... Uh, <laughs> An important distinction to make, though, because God does expect us to work and to be active in our faith. So, well, and the other thing I just might throw in there, and I was kind of scan quickly for uh, oh yeah, the passage. I think it's over in Matthew chapter seven, roughly around verse twenty-one, twenty-two, twenty-three, somewhere in there, where you know people will claim to know Jesus, you know, claim him as Lord, but not do what he says. In fact, I think there's another passage. I, I don't have it here. Here we go. Yeah. Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? Of course, Lord, if you dig into it a little bit, means master. And, you know, people don't like this, you know, master, slave, you know, terminology, but that's some of the terminology here. Now, why would you want to acknowledge Jesus as, you know, Lord, master, etc., and then turn around and not do what he says? It's just logically inconsistent. Absolutely. All right, so I think it's uh, your turn. Okay, got it here. So Rose writes in, how do I strengthen my faith? A good question, and there's you know a similar thread here, if you will, to the previous question. And that really is, you know, the best way to strengthen your faith is through God's Word. It's just that simple. And, you know, Romans 10, 17 tells us, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So, you know, as we read God's Word, as we listen to it in classes and sermons and, you know, things like this podcast, the gospel should increase, in fact, will increase our faith 
because we are taught the basic principles of God's word, when we reread even principles that we know, as Peter told the disciples back then, he wanted to stir them up by way of reminder. Well, we also are reminded of some of the things that we can easily forget or maybe haven't thought about in a while. So in that sense, it increases our faith. The Bible emphasizes what's really important in our life. As you read it, as you study it, as you allow it to continually be reinforced, it's uplifting and your faith becomes stronger and stronger. And that's one of the things I really love about just going to worship service, for instance. Because being there with your brethren, singing songs of praise, listening to the word being taught, contributing in, let's say, a class, those kinds of things are very renewing as we see in you know, Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. So absolutely should strengthen and does strengthen your faith. The more time you spend in the word, the more time you hear it and so forth. Romans chapter 1 uh, and verses 16 through 17 talks about the power of the gospel. And it's kind of interesting if you look at that Greek word there, it, it's dynamo, right? It's like dynamite. We know how powerful dynamite is. Well, Paul here and the Holy Spirit through Paul saying the gospel is like dynamite. Why? Because it totally transforms us, right? So Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, which means all men. And then notice verse 17, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So God, through his word, revealed his power and gave us this powerful word that transforms our lives. And so, like Paul said, there's no reason to be ashamed. There's every reason to understand how much it changes us. And so the regular reading and studying of the Bible, as you mentioned, Jeff, is so critical to increasing our faith. In fact, if you want just one chapter as, you know, as part of your maybe daily Bible reading to take a look at, take a look at Hebrews chapter 11. Because this is a chapter that's really devoted to the faithful men and women that we read about in the Old Testament who could only see the promises of a Messiah. They were aware of that promise. And even the thought or the, the promise, I should say, of eternal life from afar. And these people were willing to sacrifice themselves, dying in some cases in horrible ways, being sawn into and all kinds of these things. Why? Because they had tremendous faith. And they felt what God had to offer was much more important than anything that this world and that this life could offer. And so, really, it's a very encouraging chapter when you read about those people, and then you go back and, for instance, the Old Testament and read about their life uh, becomes very encouraging. So, anyhow, another thing that I think is always good is once in a while, just maybe take a moment and just write down all the reasons you have to be thankful. There's some real value in not just focusing on what's going wrong in our life, but to sit down and just literally list out things that we should be thankful for, things that God has blessed us with, you know, such as guidance and salvation and, you know, the power of prayer through Jesus to approach our Creator. Those kinds of things are so critical. And so we we'll just encourage you to do that. And so ultimately, all of these things combine can help to increase our faith by keeping life in perspective, helping to remind us of what our ultimate goal is, and that is eternal life. Final thing I'll mention, Jeff, and then I'll turn it over to you, is that we recorded a series of podcasts with our evangelist, Alan Hitchin, about adding to your faith. And it was really a wonderful series 
where Alan kind of focused on all of the different attributes or principles that we should add to our faith that's found over in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. So if you go back in the podcast listing chronologically, that's going to be episodes 40 through 48, and I can certainly recommend that for your use as well. Jeff? Good comments. I guess we move on to the next question, and you I guess you get to ask me it. Yeah, so this question comes from Loretta, and Loretta asks, can someone who backslides for an extended time ever be able to return to God and be forgiven? She then says, Hebrew scripture makes me feel that it's impossible. Right. Now, this is, I think, is an example of us trying to understand where a person's coming from. You know, when she mentioned, you know, Hebrew scripture, it's entirely possible that she's thinking in terms of Hebrews chapter six, verses four through six. Now, within that context, if you go back as early as chapter five, there's all kinds of warning that in this particular case, the audience had become dull of hearing as chapter 5, verse 11, and that they should have, at this point, grown to the point of becoming uh, teachers. Verse uh, 12, uh, again, of chapter 5. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you. Again, the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk, which we uh, read a few moments ago, you know, unskilled, talks about solid food that, you know, people need to be able to learn to be able to digest, you know, some of the, the meatier things, if you will, of the word. But there's a natural growing process, and those who don't grow regress. So that's sort of the context of the warnings of chapter 6. But Brian, if you want to go ahead and read probably what she has in mind from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. So we'll get that in front of us. Here it says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. You know, here again, like we mentioned earlier, you know, can a Christian fall away? Yes apostatize, another term for that, backslide, like Loretta, you know, mentioned, certainly is a possibility and something we should be on our guard for. And at least within this particular verse, it does sound like it is, quote-unquote, impossible. I mean, that's what verse 4 says, impossible to renew them. And person has become a Christian, is acquainted with what the Bible says, you know, at least at some point came to a, you know, knowledge of the truth, of faith, of what Jesus did, died on the cross for our sins, etc. And for them to basically turn their back on all of that, it is, in some ways, impossible to renew them again to a state of repentance. Just practically speaking, you know, what do you appeal to? Do you appeal to God's love? Well, they already know about that. Do they appeal to, you know, Christ's sacrifice on the cross? Well, they already know about that. What can you appeal to? Certainly, there are also other passages like 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, that talks about the dangers of a seared conscience, which is something that also happens when people, you know, backslide, fall away, whatever term you want to use. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared 
as with a hot iron. And of course, we understand, you know, biologically, if you, you know, burn your hand on a stove and the nerve endings get damaged, you're not going to be able to, you know, feel very much with that damaged finger, you know, for example, because the nerve endings have been kind of seared. Well, figuratively speaking, the conscience is kind of that way as well. And for those who, you know, fall away for an extended period, yeah, their conscience may have bothered them early on, but after a while, it tends to get, as this passage refers to, seared. Now, having said all of that, sometimes, occasionally, people do change. I mean, you know, sometimes it might be due to, you know, some, you know, traumatic, you know, circumstance in their life, you know, serious illness, death of a loved one, a close brush with their own, you know, personal death, you know, anything that gets them thinking of their own mortality or the brevity of life, or maybe what they used to believe about a loving, caring God. Sometimes that might get their attention. In fact, Brian, I'm reminded of a similar circumstance that is recorded under the uh, parable of the prodigal son. In fact, Brian, if you want to, for our audience, why don't you go ahead and read Luke chapter 15, starting with verse 11 through verse 17. Sure. He said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he had come to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. And of course, the parable goes on to talk about his repentance and coming back to the father, which is a very beautiful parable. One of the things I wanted to highlight to our listeners, first of all, is like, at least from a Jewish perspective, you could not have sunk any lower. When he came to himself, you know, the light kind of finally dawned on him and said, you know what? I don't like where I am. I'm, you know, you know, I got myself into this mess. I need to repent. I need to turn. I need to come back. And some people who've fallen away, uh, even for extended time periods, sometimes that happens to them as well. And of course, the, the beautiful thing about the parable goes on to show that forgiveness is always available to us, you know, if indeed we want to or willing to repent and come back to God. We have Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 28, talks about uh, the, the wicked because he considers and turns away from all the transgressions which he committed. He shall surely live, shall not die. We mentioned this particular prodigal son, you know, coming to himself. Of course, the parable goes on in verse 18 to say, I will arise, go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned. I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So while in many ways, those who, coming back to Loretta's question, can someone who backslides for an extended period of time ever be able to return to God? Yes, it is very hard. It doesn't happen all that often. 
But as long as they're alive, there is the possibility that they will, as the prodigal son did, come to their senses and come back to the truth. Yes, very true. All right, Brian, uh, next question comes from Joe. He writes in, why is it important that Gentiles through faith can be considered children of Abraham? Well, it's important because it was God's intention that with the law of Christ, which we live under today, all men, what we might call Jews and Gentiles, and just to remind everyone, when this term Gentiles is listed, it's really saying everyone who's not a Jew. So it was really God's intention, once again, that through the law of Christ, all men can be saved through faith and baptism. So to answer Joe's question, why is it important? Well, because once again, the gospel is for all. And we read uh, Galatians chapter 3 earlier. Let me just reread three verses there that talks about this. So beginning in verse 26 of Galatians 3, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Verse 29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And so everyone who is obedient to God's word and follows the plan of salvation and is baptized becomes Abraham's seed and the child of God, which is such a privilege that God will allow us to be his children through Christ. And so Hopefully uh, that answers Joe's question. Pretty straightforward, isn't it, Jeff? But uh, sometimes there can be a little confusion, especially because even today there will be some Jews that claim, well, we're God's chosen people, and we have this special status where Jesus made it clear there are no distinctions, and anyone who's obedient and faithful is a child of God in God's eyes, regardless of their nationality, gender, so on and so forth. Right. Good point. Well, and, you know, earlier we talked about a change in the law. And, of course, this change in the law is indeed what allows us Gentiles, because, you know, after all, I cannot trace my lineage back to Abraham. You know, neither can you. And, honestly, neither can anyone else on the planet, you know, living today, because, you know, all the records have been, you know, destroyed over time. But being Gentiles, you know, we can be blessed based on the promises that God made to Abraham that he would not only be the father of many nations, which includes us, spiritually speaking, but that all nations would be blessed through his seed, hence blessed through his physical descendant, Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, and of course, based on our belief in him. So, a uh, good distinction. Yeah, the next question is really kind of a series of questions from Patrick for you, Jeff, and he starts out by saying, Romans 1.17 what is the meaning of the term revealed from faith to faith in this verse? Second question, does it mean from God to man or man to man or other? Scriptural reference to explain, he, he requests. And then he asks, does God have faith of his own toward slash regarding mankind? Can you give me scriptural references to God's faith? And then he says, I understand faith by man, subjective faith, but I can only find one scriptural reference to God's faith. He cites Revelation chapter 2, verse 13, and has not denied my faith, God speaking. So Jeff, kind of a lot to unpack there, right? But anyhow, that's what Patrick was asking. 
Yep, indeed. So let's sort of take this one step at a time. So let's first of all focus on Romans chapter 1. And Brian, if you want to, why don't you go ahead and read verses 16 and 17, which I think you might have mentioned earlier, but let's refresh it in, in front of our attention. Uh, yep, so here it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Okay, so now what we need to do a little bit is digging into the verse, particularly the, the section that talks about from faith to faith, which I think is the essence of Patrick's first question. So first of all, from faith, if you do some digging into the Greek, it turns out that's the very same word that's used in the latter part of the verse, where it says the just shall live by faith. So revealed by faith. faith. In other words, the gospel reveals or says what it means to be righteous. And that that kind of righteousness then is revealed in our lives by our faithful obedience to it. And, of course, we can see that uh, equivalent expression in a lot of other verses, even later on in uh, Romans. For instance, Romans chapter 4, verse 3, For what saith the scripture, Abraham believed in God, and it was reckoned unto him for righteousness. Again, the connection between belief and faith and righteousness. Continuing on a couple verses later, verse 5, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. And then a few chapters later, chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. In contrast, for being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law unto righteousness to everyone that believes. So, you know, basically this kind of righteousness is revealed by, you know, the expression of our faith. So that's the first part of the faith. The two faith is like the reason, you know, why is, why is there the gospel? Well, it is to produce faith. That's the reasons for its, you know, existence. In fact, he has just finished saying uh, here in Romans that the gospel reveals that God makes man righteous by means of that faith. And explains that the purpose of that revelation and the purpose of the gospel is, that's the goal. You know, doing this to motivate people to believe. Now, that may sound a little bit confusing, and Brian, we have to admit there are some commentaries out there that say, well, this from faith to faith, it's a progressive kind of thing. You know, from the beginning of your faith to even more faith. But that doesn't seem to fit in with the context of Holy Spirit through Paul to the Romans, doesn't seem to be talking about a progressive stages of faith, but that faith itself. That is the way to be righteous, you know, to receive the kind of righteousness that, that God is, is talking about in this context, that a preferred explanation, like we've been trying to say, that this righteousness is the gospel message, you know, revealed through the gospel. This is what you got to believe and do to be righteous that this has been revealed in order to have faith and in turn is revealed by our faith. So its purpose is to promote faith and we can actually see it in action in our faith. Brian, any other thoughts there before I start to address the second part of Patrick's question? 
Yeah, I appreciate those points. And it really is a, an example of something we talk about from time to time on this podcast. And that is, you know, it's great to consult scholars, but you have to really look at what they're saying to see if it's consistent with what we find in the rest of the scriptures. And anytime somebody shares a concept that you don't really find anywhere else, or maybe they redefine a term and you're looking and saying, well, wait a minute, this is used in other passages and it's not used in that way. Just have to be very careful, right? And it's not always easy, but we have to do our diligence, so to speak, to see if it matches up with, in this case, like the faith talking about the overall system of gospel of Christ and so forth. Right. Good points. Well, and as you, I think, pointed out at the very beginning of the podcast, the term faith has you know several different nuanced meanings. As as we'll get into a little bit later, you know, the faith, the system of belief, objective faith versus our own personal faith. But we'll kind of save that for a little bit later. All right. So moving on to the second part of Patrick's question: Does God have faith or trust or confidence in man? Uh, no. Uh, even going back to Romans chapter 3, verses uh, 9 through 12. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all, all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They've together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Galatians chapter 3, verse 22 echoes a similar sentiment, but the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And, you know, not only people who have not yet become believers, but to be very blunt, even believers sin. All of them sin. First uh, John chapter 1, verse beginning verse 8 makes that very clear. For if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So does God have faith and trust and confidence that man will always do the right thing? No, no. And that's, that's kind of an easy one to answer. Now, to kind of wrap things up, uh, Patrick does mention uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 13, which says, and this is uh, Jesus uh, speaking, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So this faith, my faith, is not Jesus's faith in humanity, which we've shown Jesus and God as deity, you know, can't have because humanity is not faithful, separate from, you know, obedience, so to speak. But my faith, as mentioned in this passage, and the faith really are equivalent. And again, we've kind of talked about this being sort of the objective faith or the gospel, the gospel message, plan of salvation, if you want to extend it to, to some degree to, you know, and I don't necessarily want to say Christianity, but the system, if you will, you know, the faith that in turn produces an individual level of faith and trust and confidence, you know, within people. And to kind of show the, the distinction, if you will, between, you know, something I personally believe versus the faith. Acts chapter six, verse seven says, then the word of God spread. 
and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Not their personal faith, but obedient to the, the, the system or the overall gospel message, obedient to the faith. And we see that likewise echoed in Romans chapter 16, verses 26, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. It is something that people can be turned away from. Acts chapter 13, verse 8, the evilness of sorcerer, or so his name is translated, withstood them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Uh, you can be strengthened in the faith. That's Acts 16, verse 5. You can stand fast in the faith. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13. How about Jude, verse 3? Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Again, the objective faith. Uh, now, certainly in contrast to this, First uh, Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, we can see people can depart from the faith. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, Likewise, if anyone does not provide for his own, especially those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So, Brian, you know, we can kind of briefly tie that back into the, you know, once saved, always saved as being, you know, not true. That you can depart from the faith, you can deny the faith, etc. So, again, difference between objective and subjective faith that God does not have, you know, we need to have faith in God because he, you know, can easily be, uh, you know, trusted as as being God, faithful to his promises, that no, God really can't have tr trust and faith and confidence in humanity. And that, yes, we have our personal expression of our faith, our belief, our trust. But there is still an objective faith, the faith that we need to comply with. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a complex answer to a complex question, but, but hopefully our audience is able to you know, follow along. Brian, any thoughts? Yeah, appreciate all those thoughts. I mean, you know, really, Jeff, what you're kind of illustrating here is, as you touched on, how multifaceted the word is, right? Like, as you pointed out, whether it means the faith, as in the system of the gospel, whether it's talking about our faith. And these are important distinctions to make, so I appreciate you giving our listeners these passages to take a look at, because it really does help to illustrate or, or explain some of those nuances that you talked about. Yeah. All right, so you get a question from Ding writes in the bible tells us to check if we are in the true faith what must a christian do to check if he's in a true relationship with god that's an important question it really is and i appreciate ding asking this because it really is one we should all ask and we should all examine ourselves to see if we are as he says in a true relationship with god because the bible makes it clear there is a difference between that mental ascent we were talking about earlier, this, you know, belief, and that's as far as it goes, right? It's, it's sort of shallow. It doesn't truly uh, reflect or our lives do not truly reflect what God's asking us to do. So, yeah, Dang is correct. And in fact, we were told over in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5 to examine ourselves. Some translations say test yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? So, you know, we, what's interesting, and 
we've talked a little bit about this as well, Jeff. You know, there are many different translations out there. And if those of you who are listening are using one of the main translations, you know, New King James, King James, American Standard, New American Standard, ESV, and so forth. Or if you live in a country where the translation you're using has been translated from the King James or something else, you'll notice different words here in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. So for instance, as I mentioned early on, examine or test ourselves as to whether we're in the faith. And do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless you indeed are disqualified? Or if you use the New American Standard, it says, and indeed, if you fail the test. Or the King James and American Standard says that you are reprobate. So to kind of help us understand what it means to be disqualified or to fail the test or to be considered a reprobate, if you look at the original Greek word here, it means to be rejected. So basically, if you test yourselves, and how do you do that? Well, we compare ourselves to God's Word, and we'll talk more about that. And you see that you're not living according to what God's Word tells us to do, then you are rejected or worthless, the Greek word can mean, or a castaway, or as the King James says, a reprobate. So anyhow, it kind of helps us to understand that we need to test ourselves, and we do so by comparing ourselves to God's standards, which is the law of Christ that we will be judged by. And so just a couple of passages to consider along this line. First John chapter 3, uh, verse 24 says, Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. So if we keep his commandments, God and Jesus, we're told here, abides in us, and so does the Holy Spirit through his word. Jeff, could I get you to read James chapter 1, verses 22 through 27, where it also talks about this testing of ourselves? Right. And we mentioned this earlier, but I think it bears repeating. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. Well, there are some words that people don't really like to hear. This one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Yeah, I like this illustration about being a forgetful hearer or a hearer and not a doer. Is like, you know, looking at yourself in a mirror. I think we could all agree that if you look at yourself in a mirror and you walk away, you should still remember what you looked like, right? We all have this mental image of what we looked like. But in a, from a spiritual perspective, you know, it talks about looking into the perfect law of liberty, verse 25. So by studying God's word, we come to a knowledge of the truth. We come to an understanding of what we should look like spiritually, but yet it's easy, if we're not careful, to when we walk away, promptly forget what that spiritual image is looking like or should look like 
if we're living according to God's word. And so a really nice illustration here. And it you know gives an example in verse 27 of what pure and undefiled religion is. And, and this isn't all inclusive, but it's just saying, you know, doing things like visiting people who have no parents, right? Or widows that have don't have a spouse and, and are in their trouble and so forth. And then of course, keeping one's self unspotted. So a wonderful example here of when we test ourselves, what image should we be seeing? Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And it kind of goes along, Jeff, with what you were saying earlier in what Luke 6.46, where you know people call Jesus Lord, Lord, but they do not do the things that he says. Well, Jesus makes it clear here. If you don't follow what I ask you to do, then calling me Lord, Lord, believing in me, saying Jesus is great, I love God, doesn't really matter because we're not practicing what God expects us to practice. So as we see, of course, God has given us this objective standard. And so as Dang asked, you know, if we, we want to be able to verify if we have a true relationship with God, it can only come by making sure we understand his will and that we actually do it. Jeff? Right. Well, and, you know, you mentioned about having, you know, an objective standard, God's word, certainly, you know, should anchor our attitude, should anchor our actions, should, you know, anchor our beliefs as well. Because, you know, unfortunately, in our world today, we have a lot of different religious groups that all claim Jesus as Lord, you know, claim Jesus as Savior, but they all teach different things. And so that's why, as, as you've alluded to, we need to go back to the Word, understand you know, at a base level, you know, what the plan of salvation is, how to become a Christian, how that involves, you know, immersion in water in order to have forgiveness of sins, which a lot of groups teach is not essential, and then actually become an active doer of what Jesus would have us to do. So a lot of good thoughts. So that kind of brings us to the bottom of the podcast. Brian, before I refer people over to our website, do you have any uh, closing thoughts? One final thought for me, and that is, you know, early on, Jeff, you were talking about, hey, this is an important subject. I echo that. And I hope our listeners, as we've gone through the different questions that people have submitted on this kind of multifaceted topic, take into consideration those passages that we gave and the principles from God's Word and really think about how critical faith is, how much of a foundational element it is to our Christian walk, and encourage you certainly to look at that and follow that. Okay, dokie. So, as we always like to do, we would refer our listeners to our website at biblequestions.org, or as Brian indicated, there's a wealth of material. A lot of it is under the topics menu item, and particularly with respect to today's podcast, the letter B for Bible study, C for Christian evidences to help increase your faith, C for Christian living, you know, taking that faith and putting it into actual practical application. A lot of articles under F for faith, as you might suspect, uh, G for gospel, since we mentioned the gospel is how God's righteousness is revealed, or the kind of righteousness we should have is revealed, O for obedience, which we've emphasized a lot today. Uh, and the wonderful parable of the prodigal son under P for prodigal son. And as always, we would not encourage our listeners to go to the website, read the materials, but also dig into the associated scriptures and make application to their lives where appropriate. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website, biblequestions.org, where you can submit a Bible question to be answered. 
And you can also search archives where we have answered several hundred Bible questions over the years. Our website also has a host of free Bible study material, free correspondence courses, as well as sermons and a host of other material. Please stop by and check it out.